G'day, this is an abridged version of the episode that you can hear in full by signing up at uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash subscribe. Enjoy the freebie. G'day, humans. Welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas. You have questions, I have answers, and also questions, and not answers for all of my questions, nor yours. But let's give it a crack, shall we? Should we do a little AMA? Should we do an ask me anything? You know, I've been out wandering the world. I've been globetrotting. I've been uh, seeing sights. I've been inhaling smells. Not all of them pleasant in uh, West Africa. You know, you're walking along a dirt track in a little village somewhere. You go, what's that? Is that just, uh, is that open sewage? Or, oh no, there's a young gentleman uh, just taking a shit on the side of the dirt track. Hello, sir. Go about your business. Uh, Enjoy your day. And they're very friendly, I must say. Not just the people who are shitting in the street, but even the, those who aren't shitting in the street. Very friendly folks. Uh, so, I've, you know, I've been inhaling and eating and tasting all kinds of different things, and I come back with wisdom to impart. Uh, and uh, so we put out the call on the Substack. Are you on the Substack? Have you on the Substack? Anyway, I'm not going to bother. If you're not on the Substack, then you didn't get the call out for the AMAs that we sent out uh, this week. But if you are, then you did. So I've got them right here in my hot little hand. Uh, let's get cracking, shall we? From Greg P. Uh, travel logistics question. Uh, what are your must-carry-with items now? Specifically, what's in your emergency medical kit? When I was in Africa, I had a pharmacy of antibiotics for the inevitable gastric events, says Greg. What's your go-to? Uh, excellent question, Greg, and you're obviously a wise man. Uh, the best thing that I took on the trip was azithromycin, which is a very strong uh, antibiotic, single dose, basically a nuclear bomb for your gut, kills all the bacteria, the good bacteria, the bad bacteria. Uh, It can be quite hazardous because it obliterates, you know, forget about your microflora, forget about the gut gut bacteria. Your your gut is an ecosystem. It's a rainforest. It's basically like a, it's a rainforest of good bugs not after you've had some azithromycin it's a holocaust wasteland and uh, it was great because there was one day where it got from just being you know the runs to being like bent over on the bed like knees up at the chest just sweating you know sweating just the sweat and even when you're sitting on the toilet there's nothing left to give you've given everything you can't give there's nothing inside but you're just cramping up and you're sweating. You, I had to take my T-shirt off. You know, it's 35 degrees. I'm just covered in sweat in some third-world godforsaken bathroom. Anyway, anyway, you know, we're barely a few minutes into this episode. I've already raised two specters of disgusting fecal uh, experiences. You don't need that. You don't need that. Uh, so anyway, azithromycin was great. I always take Imodium, which and then regret it. Imodium plugs you up, but it plugs me up too much. I go three or four days without a poopy, and that ain't good, even if it was a bad poopy. Uh, so Imodium's usually there. For jet lag, I don't like Ambien, which is called Stillnox in Europe and Australia. It's too strong for me, and it knocks me out like a, it's like I'm like a bullock. I'm like a bullock who's been hitting the butt with a dart tranquilizer. I'm staggering around, you know, lumbering about even eight hours after having taken it. And that's too much for poor little Zepps. Uh, so I, my preference, um, if I need to knock myself out is Xanax, 
which can be a problematic drug if you take it too much. It's habit-forming, uh, so it can be a bit tricky to get unless your doctor knows uh, knows you and trusts you. Um, but mine does. So in moderation, I find Xanax to be very useful. It's not like it doesn't doesn't knock me out, but if I can't sleep because of jet lag or because I'm on a plane, it just makes me a little bit cozy, a little bit snuggly and like, ooh, I can uh, snuggle up, I can doze, I can doze a little bit. So Xanax is very useful. Then to wake me up, now I sound like a real drugo, but I've been traveling a lot for a long time, so I know what works. To wake me up, there's a drug called modafinil, which makes you more it's not a stimulant but it makes you more alert and clear-headed i think some silicon valley bros like use it to enhance their focus so i wouldn't recommend using it all the time but when i do need to if i'm sluggish especially before i'm going on the air and i'm jet lagged modafinil uh, fixes that pseudoephedrine which is just uh, you know sudafed uh, over the counter that uh, that is a good stimulant uh, what else? Oh, when I was in Africa and we needed to sleep for a short period of time, they, they gave us midazolam, which is a, a very powerful, uh, sleeping pill. And I didn't care for that. Again, I don't want to be staggering around like a wounded bull who's just been hit with a dart gun. Um, so that's my travel logistics. Apart from that, I just travel very light. I didn't take any, I was away for three weeks. I didn't take a checked bag. Just to, just to carry on. What more do you need? A few t-shirts, plenty of undies. I, I brought a few gadgets that I thought would be handy, like a little fan that plugs into a USB. <laughs> Never used it. Never used it. I brought a first aid kit just so that I had had it. Never used it. Um, another text, uh, no, sorry, another question from uh, from the old Substack. How has your trip affected your perspective on what we mean when we use the word we? in the global sense, or say things like, the world is more polarized than ever, etc. How well do you think we actually understand the world, and does this matter? Well, that's an insightful question. Um, I mean, I've always, one of my favorite sayings has always been, the world is a book, and he who doesn't travel reads only one page. Uh, I think that's true. It's also quite sexist because it says he who only doesn't travel, but I'm sure that there are women, and indeed they may not even be cisgender women. They may be transgender women. They may be sh they, they, them, she's, he's. Uh, so whoever is doing the traveling, be they male, female, non-binary, homo sapien, mammalian, reptilian, black, white, brown, I don't care, yellow. You could be yellow if you wanted to. I wouldn't even, but you could be polka dot. I don't see color or penises or vaginas ever at all. Don't even know what they are. Wouldn't even know if you showed me a picture of genitals. I'd be like, what's that? Is that sexist? Is it, are you trying to be sexist now? Um, so, but the world is a book, metaphorically, and they who don't travel read only one page of the metaphorical book. Does that make sense? And were there enough caveats? Or should I add some more? So, yeah, when you talk about we are the world is more polarized or we are this or we are that, of course we're talking about a tiny fraction of human beings who are engaged in some sort of discourse at the moment with each other. The people in West Africa aren't. It's, so it's very refreshing. One reason I love traveling is you get to see the way that other people look at the world. 
I mean, you travel through the Arab world and it's wildly sexist and misogynistic and homophobic. And it makes you realize. And now not all, not all, because as I said, you could be polka dot Arab and you might not even, you'd be rainbow Arab and that'd be fine. I'm not talking, not making generalizations. I'm certainly not making generalizations about individual human beings. I'm talking about cultures and governments and religions. So, you know, there are parts of the world where the, the, you just see such a radically different understanding. Like I was, I was, I, I used my frequent flyer miles on this, uh, on this trip to take a couple of radically extravagant first class flights. And one of them was uh, on Qatar Airways. And I'm waiting late at night at Doha Airport in the first class lounge at Qatar, which is ridiculous. It's so beautiful. It's so damn beautiful. The place, place looks like a museum. It has ceilings that are probably 40 feet high and walls of sandstone. It's just gorgeous. And uh, you know how sometimes you have to get a bus to the plane? You know, not, they don't always have a little aero bridge thing. The plane might be parked remotely, so you get a bus. That was the case here. And instead of sending us out of the lounge to go and get on the bus with everybody else, they have a, a bus boarding gate from the first-class lounge, and they have a special first-class bus. <laughs> the first-class bus is hilariously blingy. It's not a bus. You have a big, massive, red armchair, uh, like a lazy boy uh, or a lazed boy, if you're from Australia, with an auto, a leather ottoman, and the and the the chairs are kind of arranged facing each other as if you could have a kind of a meeting in the bus. So the bus only seats about maybe eight people because they're all in massive massive swivelly armchairs that can face each other. Um, and on this bus, and and enter, and getting onto the bus from the first class lounge, there's a short, fat little sheikh of some kind. He's wearing the white robes. He's very fat and very hairy. Uh, and he's got a woman beside him, and she's got the whole veil thing happening. And she's always like a foot behind him. And he's sort of, you know, arrogantly barking things at people who work for the airline and the bus and kind of being pushy. And she's not saying anything, and she's just behind him. And I just thought, I would love to know what he does. Like, not, I don't really care about his job. He's obviously important in the, in Qatar or in the Emirates or in Saudi Arabia or something. But like, how does he spend his time? And what do they do? Do they, how much do they talk? And what's their sex life like? Like, I mean, does she have any say? Does she have any opportunity? Does she like this? Is she like, I caught, I've got a great catch. I'm with a sheikh. I'm flying first class everywhere. So, yeah, of course, you go and you see that and then you come back here and we have our conversations about the Me Too movement and how terrible it is that, is it 78 cents on the dollar or 92 cents on the dollar that women get for the bloody blah and is it, is it, are they, do they actually get less for the same job? No, they don't get less for the same job. The point is that the kinds of jobs that women do tend to be undervalued because they're teachers and preschool, blah, 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 and nurses and like, yeah, the whole thing is of course, different depending on your perspective and depending on your environment. In fact, I tweeted such a thing while I was in Africa, which momentarily threatened to get me into trouble because cancel culture. Uh, I was tweeting some, and on Instagram, put some uh, pictures of the trip up. 
And in a very long thread, among other things that I was talking about, about how incredible it is to have been, to be seeing the, the sites of slavery and, you know, to be witnessing the horrors of, uh, of the slave trade, which is incidentally part of where I was, I wrote uh, the following. I wrote, Africans are the least woke people I've ever met. They're so unruffled about race, laughing about how black tribes were enslaving each other, teasing me about my thin, straight hair. We came across a chameleon on the road and my African buddy wanted to smash it with his flip-flop and eat it. Uh, In this jungle, uh, our guide is bragging about shooting monkeys, I wrote. And it's true. We went hiking near the border of Ghana and Togo. We were in Togo a very arduous hike uh, up a mountain and then down into a a valley with this huge waterfall tumbling into this river in the middle of the jungle. Uh, I went swimming and I didn't die of parasitic worms that you get in West African lakes. I didn't put my head under, but I was a little worried. And I got to tell you, I'd read those stories about how some in some African lakes and rivers, there are these little parasitic things where if you if you and pardon the French, piss in the water, then they can swim up the urine. They like the warm urine stream. They swim up the urine stream. This is if you're in in the water, especially if you've got a, a doodle and you maybe be a woman with a doodle. By the way, a polka dot woman with a doodle. Uh, they like the stream, the warm stream of uh, urine, so they swim up it and then they hide and live inside your urethra and cause you no end of problems. Uh, I got to tell you, you don't want to have anything lying in your, uh, hiding in your urethra. So I'm, uh, I'm lying and I posted this video of me lying in this, uh, this West African pool with this waterfall behind me. And it looks like I'm relaxed in that video. Uh, but I can tell you something underneath the tranquil surface of that placid lake, there's a tremendous amount of sphincter work going on and a great deal of, uh, of penile clenching to make sure that not a, not a, a drop of urine comes out of my, uh, my old fella. You know, that's, that's all going on. I'm, I'm not relaxed. I'm making sure that none of those West African parasites can get up me. So we're at this place and the guide, he's bragging, he's bragging about shooting monkeys because he finds a, a cartridge from a gun. He says, this is from uh, the, the people who shoot the monkeys. I said, do they shoot him to eat him? He said, of course, of course they do. He said, if you didn't shoot him to eat him, otherwise there'd be monkeys swinging through all the trees. He says that like it's a bad thing. And I guess it is a bad thing if you live there. You don't want the monkeys swinging through all the trees. You'd rather shoot them. And then what are you going to do with them? Well, you eat them. So then I tweeted, I continued on this tweet thread, try white-splaining to Africans how colonialism and capitalism disrupts the delicate environmental equilibrium of traditional cultures, and they look at you like you're a dickhead who's never been attacked by a baboon. Uh, and then I said, oh, because we, we went to a primary school as well, we met lots of West African kids. Uh, oh, and West African children, I write, are taught that they have agency, that racial oppression is in the dustbin of history, not that they are living victims of white supremacy. I know this because I spoke to some teachers there. Uh, I say, it's eye-opening how parochial we are about race in the West. A billion Africans couldn't give a stuff about white folks virtue signaling to each other about diversity, equity, inclusion. Africans want white friends, white money, and white equals. They don't have time for white guilt. And then I ended up saying Africa and Africans are the bloody best. 
that got me in a bit of trouble, which I'll go into in a future episode. Uh, the trouble didn't eventuate into anything, but suffice it to say that um, a colleague who I want to get on the, on this show because I think it's easier to talk about these things, uh, talking about them rather than tweeting about them, got into a huge Twitter spat. It became, I thought, quite hastily defamatory, saying that that Twitter thread was uh, a thinly veiled excuse for my deep prejudice and bigotry against black people. And uh, anyway, the media got wind of unrest at the ABC, and uh, so then a media organization contacted my boss. My boss had to escalate that Twitter thread up to the editorial policies people. Can you believe this? I mean, really, at the public broadcaster, the editorial policies people, to their credit, to their great credit, found nothing wrong with that. They said, no comment. This doesn't, it's not in breach of any guidelines. Don't see anything, any problem with that. I had to do a back channel uh, outreach to, well, I didn't have to. I thought it was a good idea to do a back channel outreach via email to contact this individual who was tweeting at me directly saying maybe it's maybe this isn't the best maybe twitter is not the best place to hash out these kinds of disagreements in a public forum like that anyway the point that i was trying to make and the reason i pause so long there is because there are so many directions that you could go with this and i just have to sit down with her to figure out what the best direction is but the point that i was trying to make is precisely the point that's pointed to in this question from our substack listener which is the universalization of our own contemporary ethics and social and cultural attitudes is what is one of the most infuriating and I think counterproductive dead ends in our current cultural moment. I mean, we're always parochial, you know, we're always universalizing things from our own personal experience and assuming that 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 experience is universal. I try to stop myself from doing it, but of course I'm guilty of it sometimes. Um, But the idea that my observations over there are that because they contravene the way that we're supposed to talk about social justice and racial issues in 2023 in Australia and the United States, because they run counter to what is regarded as being the correct way of thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, that I am a bigot for simply noting them, like that's that's a stretch. I mean, that is really a stretch. So how has the trip affected my perspective on what we mean when we talk about like we and us and the world being polarized and everything? It opens my eyes. It would open anyone's eyes to how petty our squabbles are and how contingent what we think is important is. Next question uh, from the uh, Substack AMA, which you could be part of and you would have contributed to if you'd just gone to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com and uh, subscribed. Oh, also, I should mention, um, if you are on the free tier of Substack, you're about to lose your benefits. We said you were going to get them for two months. You've been getting them for uh, six, seven, eight months or whatever it's been now. Uh, you'll still continue to get a, a weekly newsletter. You'll get whatever the free things are. But so far, even free people have been getting uh, the full uh, premium uh, the full of premium episodes, right? And uh, the only people who had the premium episodes fading out after a short teaser were people who'd never even bothered to subscribe to Substack at all in the first place. 
if you have subscribed to Substack but you're not paying anything, then you will notice that the premium episodes will start to uh, reflect the fact that you're not paying for them. So just pay for them if you want. And if you're not on Substack at all, just go to Substack. It's easy to subscribe. Then you get your own personalized podcast feed. Uh, it's yours forever. And then when you upgrade or downgrade, you get you know the uh, appropriate content uh, that you choose. So you, you're empowered. You're empowered. Uh, rather than just getting whatever it is that happens to be out there on the the free feed. It's not hard. I know there's a lot of friction about it. I know nobody wants to have to go and type in uncomfortableconversation.substack.com and where do I go? You basically go slash listen, and the slash listen page is where you get your own dedicated Uncomfortable Conversations uh, feed that will uh, that will follow you through whatever level of subscription you choose to select. So uh, the next question is... Uh, uh, two good first date questions that I would ask you and your guests if I could, this person writes. One, if you could have a billboard up somewhere, what would you put on it? That's good, isn't it? What would I put on a billboard? 